After the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. They also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived from Galilee, in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. May God bless to our understanding the reading of this, his holy word. We are immersing ourselves in the life of Jesus Christ all this year, all of 2012, and we are doing this by paying close attention to what Jesus said, what he did, as it's given to us by John in John's Gospel. Of the four Gospels, John is really unique. He tells stories, he gives words, he gives a portrayal of Jesus that Matthew and Mark and Luke, the other three Gospel writers, really don't. One of the characteristics of John's gospel is that he notes seven different, what he calls signs, seven signs that Jesus does to show his glory. That is to say, it, these signs point to something about who Jesus is as God who has come into this world in person. I hope we are reading John for ourselves, whether a little bit at a time or a lot at a time, reading it through and then starting again, getting it into us, uh, reading it um, different times in different ways, but just getting into the life of Jesus as we find it in John. The healing of the dying son of the royal official is the second sign. We're told this is the second sign that Jesus did. Jesus returns to the town of Cana in Galilee. This is where he did his first sign, the turning of the wine into water. Uh, the water into wine, you remember. Now, we often, most often, use the word miracle when we talk about a time when Jesus healed somebody or when Jesus uh, raised somebody back to life or when he takes a few crumbs of bread and feeds many, many people. We use the term miracle, but John prefers the word sign. As a matter of fact, more often than not, the Bible uses the term sign or signs and wonders or mighty deeds of power that Jesus did. 
the NIV, those who were reading just a moment ago in the New International Version, will notice they added the word miraculous. It's not there in the Greek text. They added it to kind of give a little embellishment to sign to help us like we don't know what a sign is, but I guess they think we need help. So they put the word miraculous, but it's just sign. That's the word that's used. And that Jesus did miraculous signs, you know, was never really disputed until about the past 200 years and mostly in the West. Do you know that the Islamic Quran tells us that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he did signs? And even liberal theologians, even scholars, very liberal scholars who won't even hold to Jesus' deity or other things about him, his raising from the dead, they would say it's indisputable. Jesus did healings and signs. This is something we believe about him across the board. But the modern age that we live in, that we have been raised in, that we've been accustomed to, the modern age of rational thinking, of, of science and scholarship, have tended to make many suspicious of Jesus actually doing any of these things. After all, if we don't understand it, then certainly it could not have happened. We therefore dismiss such things as being impossible. Maybe we're too refined, too enlightened, uh, intellectually bourgeois, to really think that Jesus did the things the gospel says he did. Because if it can't be rationally explained, then obviously it must not have happened. That's the way we think about it. There's a novel, a good novel, called Peace Like a River, written by a writer named Leif Engel. Leif Engel. And it's narrated, it's a story about an 11-year-old boy whose name is Ruben. He has a sister whose name is Swede. And uh, this is what Reuben says. He speaks about miracles at one place in that book. And he says this, Real miracles bother people, like strange, sudden pains unknown in medical literature. It's true. They rebut every rule all we good citizens take comfort in. Lazarus obeying orders and climbing up out of the grave. Now there's a miracle, and you can bet it upset a lot of folks who were standing around at the time. When a person dies, the earth is generally unwilling to cough him back up. A miracle contradicts the will of the earth. And then he quotes something his sister, Swede, said to him. People fear miracles because they fear being changed. Though ignoring them will change you also. Swede said another thing, too, and it rang in me like a bell. No miracle happens without a witness. Someone to declare, here's what I saw, here's how it went, make of it what you will. Let me say that a miracle is not a cute thing, but more like the swing of a sword. In this second sign, the royal official, who's from the town of Capernaum, comes to Jesus and he begs him to come to his home to heal his son who is close to death. Cana is 20 miles That's a long road. It's a long way to go. Now, we know Jesus for his compassion. When he encounters desperate people in need, he responds with tremendous willingness, tremendous mercy to help people. But I don't think we're quite prepared for the way that Jesus responds to this desperate man who is in fear of losing his son. He says this, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Not the answer we're expecting. That's not the welcoming, uh, warm, open-hearted Jesus that we're used to. He seems exasperated. 
no, did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed this particular morning? Come on, Jesus, have a heart. The guy needs your help. Jesus isn't just speaking to this man with this rebuke. He's speaking to all the Galileans who have gathered around him who are listening. The pronoun in that verse is you. Uh, and the you is plural. So he's speaking to more than just the man. He's speaking to everybody. You all are just here because unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It says the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all the great things that he had done at the Passover feast. This takes us back to the end of the second chapter before Jesus meets with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And there it says, end of the second chapter, during the time he was in Jerusalem, those days of the Passover feast, many people noticed the signs he was displaying and seeing they pointed straight to God, entrusted their lives to him. But Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out. Knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through them. People came to Jesus because of the remarkable signs he did, but Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew what is inside of us. That is not a compliment to human nature. The Galileans' welcoming of Jesus, it was only superficial. Had he not done signs and wonders, they wouldn't have been interested in him at all. And Jesus sees right through it. And he knows the impure motives that they have that's attracting them to him. And he's warning them about their welcome of him. It's like going down to Energy Solution Arena and we're fawning over the, fawning, falling down over the players on the jazz basketball team for all their great athletic feats and all the things that they do. And we ignore the hot dog vendor. We tend to worship fame. We tend to discard the ordinary. We're prone to favoritism. We gravitate towards what and who will benefit us. We also go for the spectacular. Jesus is always critical, always critical of a faith that is only, only about signs and wonders. Jesus said that when some people stand before him, a day will come when they will appeal to the way they prophesied, they drove out demons, they performed many miracles in his name, and on that day, Jesus says this, he will say to them, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. Another time, Jesus says, it's only wicked and adulterous generations that need to see signs. not a religious sideshow. He isn't about he is about spiritual things. But he's not about spiritual thrills. His signs and wonders and the signs and wonders that his followers ended up doing, the apostles, are not the focus of our faith. Jesus is the focus of our faith. The word sign as opposed to the word miracle is significant. Think of what a sign does. A sign points to something beyond itself. When we see a sign for Zion National Park, we don't stop right there, pull over on the side of the road, start taking pictures of the sign, congregate around there, and spend a lot of time with it. No, the sign is pointing to something greater, to the majesty and the beauty of Zion National Park that's behind that sign. The sign points to something larger. In John, the signs of Jesus are not the point in themselves, but they point to the person, to the glory of Jesus. 
that Jesus turned water into wine is incredible. It is. So what? What do you do with about 200 gallons of wine? They point to something about Jesus and who he is. Yes, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But even that won't last beyond this life. Lazarus eventually did die, and he died for good. The point of the sign was to demonstrate that Jesus has power over death and is the resurrection and the life. Also, welcoming Jesus only for his signs and his wonders runs the danger of making us love Jesus only when all is good, only when all is sunshine in our lives. As long as things are good and lovely, then we welcome Jesus, right? But things get tough, don't go as they want, maybe we don't have any use for the Lord. We, rel we relate to him as long as he blesses us, as long as he is useful to us. Hence, we think of the prosperity gospel, which many uh, of uh, you can find on religious television, and you can find plenty of that, can't you? But this royal official, he doesn't watch those channels, and I don't think he listens to those preachers. Because his faith does not wither at Jesus' rebuke, when, and, and he merely asked Jesus again to come and heal his son. He asked him again, he just hangs in there with Jesus. You know, Jesus seems a little cranky other times, too. One time a Canaanite woman, non-Israelite woman, came to Jesus, begging him for mercy on her daughter, who was struggling with lifelong, suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus rebuffs her by saying he was sent only to the lost house of Israel. In other words, she really doesn't count. And then he says, and by the way, we're not to take our food and throw it to the dogs. Nothing like calling somebody a dog. She replies, well, you know what? Even the dogs will eat the crumbs under the master's table. In other words, I'll take even the crumbs if you give me that. And Jesus hears this. And he commends her for her faith, and her daughter is healed. Christian discipleship often experiences what appears to be Jesus' rebuke. Can our faith hang in there when the going is rough? Do we have a faith that will live with Jesus even when he doesn't answer the way we want? The royal official, he has a persistent faith. He will not be put off. Find Jesus so you aren't thrilled with people who only want signs and wonders. I'm still asking you to come. I wonder if Jesus' kind of seeming, seemingly harsh spirit with this official, with that crowd, with the Canaanite woman, is because he wants to bring the best out of them. I mean, I just wonder. He wants to find out what they're really made out of, what their faith is made out of, and force them to think about what their faith is about. You know, as a coach pushes an athlete, or as a teacher prods a musician, or as a mentor uh, brings along a young protege, they do it by challenging them. And so Jesus does that to strengthen the faith of his disciples wants to purify our motivations. He pushes us so that our faith will grow. Jesus wants more than sign followers. He wants Jesus trusters. Well, after the official asks a second time, Jesus answers. You may go. Your son will live. Simple as that. Your son will 
know, this man's original request was for Jesus to come with him all the way back to Capernaum, over 20 miles away, and heal his son. When he makes his request again, it is again to come. Because wouldn't Jesus' physical presence, wouldn't his touch be a lot more effective? Surely that would do it. But when Jesus says, your son will live, it says, and this is important, the man took Jesus at his word. Took him at his word. Would we have the faith to simply walk away without Jesus coming and believe that what he said would happen? I mean, can Jesus' word travel the distance? It's one thing when Jesus is there. What about if he's not there? This royal official, he has an overcoming faith. It is a faith that will walk, or maybe he rode on a horse, I don't know, either way, walk that over 20 miles to come and get Jesus in the first place. It is a faith that will not be discouraged, though the first time he is met with Jesus' rebuke. It is a faith that takes Jesus at his word, and he goes back those 20 miles in hope, believing that his son will be okay once he gets there. I think William Barclay beautifully captured the power of this official's faith when he commented that this man had faith enough to turn and walk back that 20-mile road with nothing but Jesus' assurance to comfort his heart. It is the very essence of faith that we should believe that what Jesus says is true. So often we have a kind of vague, wistful longing that the promises of Jesus should be true. The only really the only way really to enter into them is to believe in them with the clutching intensity of a drowning man. How far are we willing to walk to ask Jesus for his intervention? This man took Jesus at his word. If Jesus said it, then he would clutch onto that word with the intensity of a drowning man. I admit, I think it's hard to take Jesus at his word. Often, and more often than not, my faith is, well, I need a stronger faith, let's just put it that way. But Jesus' word is one of the big points in John's gospel. How does the gospel begin? Do you remember the very first verse? In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is not only the living Word of God, He is the one who speaks the living Word of God. And you know, to the Jewish mind, a Word wasn't just a sound. A Word had power. A Word did something. It had creative force to make stuff happen. Didn't God create the world by saying, and let there be? came into being. Other things about the word of the Lord, the scripture testifies to. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He, the Lord, sent forth his word and healed them. Isaiah 55, so is my word. It goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Jeremiah, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Not a 
Greeks believed that the word of God was the reason of God. It held the universe together. It was why there was order instead of chaos. It kept the world going. That was the, the word of God. When Mary, remember when Mary hears that she is going to be the mother of the Christ, she responds this way, let it be with me according to your word. You spoke it, it is my word. One time when a Roman centurion summons Jesus to come and heal his servant, he's also sick, the centurion sends friends to stop Jesus from coming all the way. He says, if Jesus just says the word, his servant will be healed. And we're told this amazed Jesus. You know, Jesus is not easy to impress. This amazed Jesus. And he praises the faith of the centurion. Jesus, just say the word. That's good enough for me. This story of the royal official, it's a healing story. It's about healing. But there are other things that we need to take Jesus at his word. We need to take Jesus at his word about his love for us. Because often we really don't think Jesus loves us all the time in every way. And we think we probably need to earn it in some way. We probably need to be better in some way for him to really love us. We need to take Jesus at his word when it comes to his moral teaching. When it comes to his commands. We need to take Jesus at his word about who he is. Where he's from. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the resurrection and the life. That he is God. We need to take Jesus at his word about life and death, about heaven, about hell. We need to take Jesus at his word about our forgiveness. We just can't believe that Jesus freely offers this without some kind of payment on our part. And so we often needlessly carry around a lot of guilt because of our failures. We need to take Jesus at his word. turns out the boy was healed at the exact time Jesus said to that father, your son will live. He took Jesus at his word and his word was immediately good. And the result is that we read his entire household came to believe in Jesus. The second sign in John's gospel leads an entire household, no matter how big it was, an entire household to believe Jesus is the Christ. When Jesus turned that water into wine, that first sign, we are told his disciples first put their faith in him. You see, belief is the reason for the signs. They open a door to see Jesus. They open a door to faith. In the book of Acts, when the apostles do great signs, they don't give a seminar on how to deal with pe- uh, how to heal people right there. They don't talk about how you cast out demons or how you do these things. They don't do that. They just use that sign to proclaim God, to proclaim what it means to have peace with God and who Jesus Christ is. Signs show that God is real and that his power is operating in this universe. The signs are merely meant to open a door so that people can hear about Christ and believe. Because remember, a miracle is not a cute thing. It is like the swing of a sword. It's meant to pierce our hearts with the glory of God and help us have faith in God who is present and active in Christ. God, give us the grace. God, give us the faith to take Jesus at his word.